Welcome to Pleasant Grove Church, where Reverend Dr. Classy M. Preston is the pastor. A place where the Word of God impacts and transforms your life. Let's listen to a power-packed message already in progress. The Word of God, I believe the Lord has a word for us today. Giving honor to God, who is the head of my life, to our dear Pastor Preston, to the leadership of this church, to the people in the audio, to our magnificent musicians, to the people on the doors, to our ushers. I greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. God, we thank you for this preaching moment, and Lord, uh, we want to hear from you. Even this preacher wants to hear from you today, O God. So use me for your glory to bring a word that I believe that you gave me for your people. Be glorified today in Jesus' name. Amen. My sermon today is taken from the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a Jew who was a high official in the Babylonian Empire. He had probably been born there. In fact, most Jews had been born away from Israel because decades earlier, they had been taken out of Israel as slaves by the Babylonians. So chances are, Nehemiah his parents, and probably even his grandparents were born in Babylon. God had allowed a Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar to totally destroy Jerusalem and take most of the Jews back as their slaves. And it was because of Israel's disobedience. God had originally wanted the Jews to be a nation of priests. They were supposed to be the worshipers in the earth, the ones who stood in the gap, who prayed for the rest of the world. He wanted his light to shine through them. They weren't supposed to act like everybody else, talk like everybody else, even eat like everybody else. God called them to be holy. That didn't happen, though. They became prejudiced and self-righteous. Most of the praying they did, they prayed for themselves. (laughs) And even though they thought they were better than everybody else on earth, they copied some of the worst things of other people. Their neighbors didn't worship one god, but many gods. Other nations had gods for just about everything you can imagine. Baal was the fertility god. So if you want to get pregnant or if you wanted your your land to produce a lot of crops, you prayed to Baal. Dagon was the god of water and rain. So if you were experiencing a drought, you prayed to Dagon. Milcom was a god you went to if you wanted to dabble in the supernatural. So if you wanted to know the future or if you wanted to put a curse on your neighbor, you went to Milcom. There were many other gods that the people worshipped. In fact, when the Jews left Egypt in the great exodus, each of the ten plagues that God hit Egypt with was directed at one of their chief gods. It was God's way of showing the Egyptians that he alone was the powerful God. Now, before God allowed the Jews to enter the promised land of Israel, He told them that being able to stay there was conditional. 
they had to do certain things to stay in that land. If they obeyed and did what he told them to do, they would stay in the land and have his protection. But if they disobeyed, he would cause their enemies to kick them out. And at the top of the list of the conditions that God gave Israel, he said, don't worship other gods. <laughs> well, they broke that part of the covenant real good. As a matter of fact, the Jews got so good at worshiping other gods that they even began to sacrifice their children to Baal. And do you know how you do that? You worship Baal by throwing your child in a furnace so that they could be incinerated. The Jews even built tabernacles way up in the mountains of God to honor these, in the mountains of Israel, to honor their different gods. Even the kings, even King Solomon put tabernacles to other gods up into the mountains of God. Can you imagine that? Some of the kings of Israel even sacrificed their children to Baal. Can you imagine what an affront this was to God? I hope you're getting a sense of how backslidden Israel had become. And the Jews had sinned for so long, they probably thought God didn't even mind what they were doing. <laughs> One thing that we should all remember, though, God is patient and long-suffering, but we should never think he doesn't see us in our sin. God wants us to deal with our sin. And if we don't, God will deal with our sin. Now, God had been patient with Israel for decades. But it seemed like the longer he gave the Jews, the worse they got. So King, God allowed King Nebuchadnezzar to swoop in and destroy Jerusalem and take most of the Jews away as slaves. 2 Kings 25 describes what happened. It says, Nebuchadnezzar set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. He burned down every important building. He also broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Now, this got me wondering, what if God allowed something like that to happen to us? What if God allowed another country to defeat America because of our sins? Imagine if God allowed Russia or China to overpower us, to destroy our churches, our homes, our businesses, all the government buildings. What if they stripped every bank account, took total control over social media, television stations, newspapers, and the telephone carriers. What if they forced most of us to leave as slaves and go serve them? What Nebuchadnezzar did was catastrophic to the Jews. You have to understand, Jerusalem was the center of their world. The temple of God was there. And the temple was everything. The presence of God was in the temple. The literal presence of God rested on the ark. 
in the temple. Nebuchadnezzar not only destroyed Jerusalem, but he also destroyed the temple. The temple was where the Jews took their offerings and their sins were forgiven. It was their personal connection to God and the earth. It's what separated them from everybody else. God was living among them. For God to allow the temple to be destroyed, it was as if God was saying, that's it. (laughs) A worse thing couldn't have happened. Sin can cause walls to come down. Sin invites judgment. So 150 years after that happened, a Jewish man named Nehemiah went to Jerusalem to build the walls around the city. And like I said, this might have very well been the first time Nehemiah even went to Israel. But when he heard about the place of his people, how the walls of Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, were still down after 150 years, he risked everything to go back to help his people. Walls around a city made a city a city. Without walls to protect people, anything could come in. Thieves, rapists, murderers, wild animals, even other armies. You were defenseless without walls around a city. Having a city without walls would be like having a house without walls. It wouldn't be much of a house, would it? When Nehemiah came to Jerusalem, he brought all the material to build the walls because there wasn't much there. He organized the people in Jerusalem to help him rebuild the walls around the city. And it wasn't an easy job. The people had to work around the clock at times. And the whole time they were building, they were being threatened by people that didn't want those walls up. People that were used to walking through and doing what they wanted to do to the Jews. Our scripture today records what happened once the walls were up. It says the Jews put on clothes made out of sackcloth. Then they put ashes on their head, read scripture, and cried out to God. Sackcloth was a coarse material usually made of black goat's hair, so it was very uncomfortable to wear. When you wore sackcloth, you were showing people around you and you were demonstrating God that you were either in mourning or you were sorry for your sins. When people saw you wearing sackcloth, they knew something heavy was going on with you. It was unusual to wear sackcloth. It attracted a lot of attention. It'd be like a woman walking down the street in a wedding dress. We'd all kind of wonder what was going on with her. In times of national disaster or repenting from sin, people also wore ashes. For instance, in the book of Esther, when a law was passed to destroy the Jews, the Bible says the Jews laid down in sackcloth and ashes to show their grief and distress. In the book of Jonah, God sent the prophet Jonah to people called in in the city called Nineveh, the Ninevites, to tell them that God was about to destroy their city. The Bible says everybody in Nineveh, including the king, put on sackcloth and ashes and fasted. It says 
the people of Nineveh even put sackcloth on their animals. And because of their show of repentance, God spared the city. So, after the Jews finished building the walls around Jerusalem, they put on sackcloth and ashes, read scripture, and cried out to God for their sins and the sins of their forefathers. They read the word to remind them of the covenant that they had broken with God about staying in the land. The Jews put on sackcloth and ashes and cried out to God for their sins and the sins of their ancestors because they realized rebuilding the walls of the city was good, but it didn't truly fix their problem. They knew that sin had brought down the walls the first time, and sin could bring down the walls again, and they needed the help of God so they would not fall back into the same type of things that brought down the wall. I think we can learn some important lessons from what they did. There are times when God will allow destruction to come to a person, a family, a town, parts of a nation, or even a whole country. And at one point in our history, God allowed the whole earth to be flooded, if you don't recall that, because of sin. A few weeks ago, Tony and I were in Charleston, South Carolina, with the Cary Chamber of Commerce. I'm on the board of the, uh, the chamber. We went there with some town officials. The mayor was there. Town council people were there. Top developers in Cary. We all went to Charleston, South Carolina to see how they had changed their city from being one of the worst economically performing cities to one of the top ones now. One of the people we heard from was the former mayor of Charleston. His name is Joseph Riley. He had been mayor there from 1975 to 2015, so over 40 years. He's the person most credited with turning Charleston around. He was, he's so transformational that they say people come from all over the world just to have a conversation with the guy. He's in his 80s now, quiet, small man. And even though he's been out of office for several years, he's still shaping Charleston. One of the most profound things he managed to do in Charleston was he had most of its downtown and surrounding area around downtown declared a historical district. Charleston is second only to Rome, Italy for the amount of land dedicated as a historical district. So tourists come there from all over. You have all these old buildings that have been restored. And the streets are still cobblestone. <laughs> it's amazing. So block after block of this. He shared something with us about Charleston's history that still uh, motivates his life. He said, Charleston was the place where about half of all black people came into America as slaves from Africa. He said he thought that Charleston needed to make 
some amends for its part in this ugly chapter in American history. So he dedicated himself to building an African-American museum that chronicled that. He's raised over $100 million, and that museum is scheduled to open next fall. And one of the remarkable things about the museum is that we'll be able to go there and trace our history. I think that's phenomenal. We also learn in this conference that in the 1800s, the economy of Charleston was built on rice. They were one of the biggest rice producers in the world. But right after the Civil War, the city was hit with a series of hurricanes that swamped the land, brought in ocean water, swamping the land, destroying, basically, their, their ability to grow rice. That destroyed their economy. I remember Tony and I looking at each other saying, that was the judgment of God on them. <laughs> when something cataclysmic happens, repentance very well may be in order. People not, might need to repent of their sins and the sins of their family, the sins of their ancestors, and maybe even the sins of their nation. Too often when tragedy happens, we are conditioned to just move on. Get over it. Fix it up. We don't allow time for mourning or reflection. We don't take time to think about how that trauma has impacted people. We don't consider the factors that might have contributed to the trauma happening. And with all the traumas that our nation has experienced lately, you think we'd all be in sackcloth and ashes. We've been hit with one thing after another thing after another thing. Allow me to give you a quick overview of just the last couple of years. We've lost almost 800,000 people to COVID. Most of those people had to die by themselves without loved ones around them. We've missed celebrations like weddings and graduation, proms, vacations, and family reunions. Most churches like this one had to meet over Zoom. Millions of people became destabilized because of what was happening on their jobs. Most of our kids lost a whole year of progress in school. And that's just some of the things related to the pandemic. We'll never know the cost of the pandemic. I was talking to a pastor in Uganda, and he was saying, you know, Unwanted pregnancies among young girls have gone up 25% here because they're not in school and they're being preyed upon. We'll never know the full cost of this pandemic. That's just a pandemic. Last January, our government was almost overthrown. By the grace of God, no elected officials were murdered. By the grace of God. Every year, thousands of Americans are killed by gun violence. And our kids have to live with the threat of being shot at school. Most of us are still reeling from the death of George Floyd. 
fires have burned thousands of acres out west. Record flooding decimated whole sections of our country. And two nights ago, a tornado, they, they called it, I've never heard a meteorologist use this term. He said it was a swarm of tornadoes. I've never heard that used with, the, with tornadoes before. A swarm of them tore through six states. They said one tornado alone stayed on the ground 250 miles. And he said, and I, I couldn't hardly believe it. I said, well, I had to replay. He said, some of the debris was thrown up 20,000 feet in the air. That's where airplanes fly. And our nation is as divided as it was when we fought the Civil War. Trauma after trauma after trauma. Do you think it's time we began to seek the face of God? I sure do. What would happen if the people of God did what Nineveh did? If we gathered and cried out to God and put on sackcloth and ashes and confessed our sins. Think about what would happen if we just came together on gun violence. Do you think we'd get some solutions? I think God would change hearts of some people or remove them. Remove the ones who are standing in the way of of meaningful gun reform. Saints of God, there is power in prayer. There's power in repentance. And that power is magnified when believers can come together before the face of God. 2 Chronicles 7.14 says this. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. That's God's promise to us. How many believe we need a healing in our land? We are just a few weeks away from a new year. 2020 was hell. 2021 was double hell. I don't want another year like those. Do you? I'm going to close with this. Because that's the word God gave me for you. Hope it wasn't too stiff. I'm sorry. But I pray over the next couple of weeks, everybody under the sound of my voice will be intentional about seeking the face of God, about repenting for themselves, for their families, and for their nation. Walls are down. We need God to help us. God bless you.
If you are ready to give your life to Jesus Christ, we invite you to pray this prayer with us. And it says, Dear Lord, I admit that I am a sinner and there is nothing that I can do to save myself. I ask for your forgiveness. And you can do this if you are streaming. At this moment, I believe you alone are the one who bore my sins when you died on the cross and rose from the dead. Today, I turn from my sinful life and invite you into my heart. I will trust you and follow you all of the days of my life. Thank you for saving me and hearing my prayer. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. It is our prayer that this message will enlighten and empower you to do the will of God. If you have a prayer request or praise report or like additional information on Pleasant Grove Church or other recorded messages, come visit us in person or write to us at Pleasant Grove Church, Post Office Box 3603, Cary, North Carolina, 27519. Or call us at 919-363-5198. Or visit us on the web at www.pgc-carry.org. Thank you again.